Hi, Shane. Um, incredible background. I thought it was a virtual background, but that you told me you're outside. That's amazing. Yeah. Hi. Uh, yeah. Good to meet. Yes, I'm outside. Um, I think all of the work I do is outside. All of my analysis and coaching, everything is done outside. So yeah, it's a, it's a real background. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. That's great to know. So how's everything? Uh, how's everything in England? Yeah, really good. Yeah, we've got some uh, some great weather at the moment, which is good. So we're, we're in our summer. So uh, yeah, we're enjoying the good weather and we're getting more back to normal and uh, being able to move around a lot more. So, my, so I'm back out coaching now. And uh, yeah, it's, it's all good stuff. Mm. Running was one of the few thing, few, few activities uh, that went affected by uh, the pandemic, right? I mean, that's one of the yeah. things you could do running and cycling. Absolutely. Yeah. And in interestingly, certainly in the UK, I don't know how it is for you, but certainly in the UK, a lot of people actually took running up during the pandemic because we were given a specific amount of time that we could go out and exercise. And actually, many people that weren't, wouldn't have actually have done that had, had we have not been in lockdown, actually chose to go outside and use that time. And, and I guess running is the ideal one because it's very easy to do within an hour um, and doesn't really need much equipment. So actually, a lot of people have discovered running over the last year, which is fantastic. Definitely. Um, I, I used to go to the gym a lot uh, before the pandemic, and uh, we'd see a lot of, including me, we wouldn't bother running outside. We'd just go to the gym and, you know, put in like 10 or 20 minutes uh, on the treadmill. But I, what I noticed was a lot of gym goers uh, without the gym because of the lockdown, you know, took up running and found yeah. that it is much, much better as compared to, you know, going, running uh, at the gym. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, can act, if you can get outside, there are so many more benefits other than just the cardiovascular benefits of running, that headspace it gives you, getting outside and kind of seeing a bit of nature. And even if it's urban, even if it's in a city, you're still outside, you know, and I, and I yeah, I think the benefits go long way beyond actual just physical benefits. I, I think it's, it's great. Right, right. So, uh, yeah, like I mentioned before the podcast, uh, we, I'll be asking really basic questions and I hope you don't mind uh, uh, answering them because uh, you're an expert in this field and you'd probably expect more technical stuff, but uh, we'd probably get back to you uh, with that uh, later down the line. Yeah, this, that's no problem at all. And, you know, the beautiful thing about running and movement and technique is that actually it's the same for an elite athlete as it is a complete beginner. Human movement, it doesn't really mind whether you're an elite athlete or a beginner. There's a, there's a, there's a beautiful way for a human to move. Uh, and that's the same for everybody. So the questions will be fine. No problem. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, so the first question is for the ones who don't take up running and uh, who don't run as often, uh, one pushback I've noticed to my experience as well is the boredom part of it. So how do you counter boredom? Okay, so I think really what we should start to do, if we can, is think of running um, as a movement skill. So if you were doing yoga or if you were doing martial arts or if you were meditating, you kind of treat that as a skill. And I think that's what we should do with running. So rather than just going out for an hour, you know, and running around because we think it's going to keep us healthy, of course it will. But if we start to treat it as a skill and we get mindful about our movements and we want to make those movements ever better, I think that keeps it really interesting.
Right. So, um, could you go deeper into what you mean by thinking of movement as a skill? Um, for for somebody who is a beginner, it's just running. So, how deep can you get with just running? <laughs> yeah, I know. I understand what you mean, and I think I think the beautiful thing about running is. we can all do it we you know that's kind of what we used to do as humans that's what our ancestors used to do so that's amazing um and which means we can all do it but because we can all just go out and do it i don't think we do treat it as a skill we do, we you know we just go out and do it without too much of a thought process so for me as a researcher you know i travel around the world a lot um and i work with uh, athletes all around the world and i also spend time with tribes and indigenous people all around the world in the arctic the amazon the sahara desert mongolia i did, indeed i come to india every year uh, america all over the world i work all the time studying how humans were designed to move and one of the really exciting things that i've kind of uh, found out about human movement is it's I think it's very different from how we grow up understanding it. We're always taught to think about our body as almost a mechanical thing. We hear a lot about biomechanics and I think we think about our um skeleton as being the main structure of our body and when we move that skeleton almost moves as a, a series of levers. But actually the way I've come to see human movement is essentially the 206 bones in your body are essentially floating in a sea of elasticity okay so the skeleton isn't the main structure of the body at all and actually i use this very simple toy to kind of explain the re relationship between your skeleton and the elastic system in your body your fascial system so this very simple toy if you look at it the pieces of wood none of the pieces of wood touch each other they're kind of sitting in a sea of elasticity created by the elastic cords now in your body the pieces of wood are your bones and the pieces of elastic cord that actually create the sea of tension they're your tendons they're your ligaments and you have something called myofascia so actually when you move your skeleton is just free flowing in a sea of tension if you put beautiful height into that sea of tension you create a lot of elastic recoil and so if we understand that we can start to make beautiful movements that make elastic recoil that put elastic tension into our system and you know you don't have to be uh, a runner to enjoy that i know you are a, a tennis player yeah so if you think about when a tennis ball is coming to you that position you get with your body when you're going to hit the ball back you get your body into a beautiful position actually what that's doing is creating a lot of elastic recoil in the body so that when you hit the ball you hit it with a lot more power we tend to think of power as muscle but actually we have this amazing elastic system which gives us far more strength than muscle ever could and so if we start to understand that system then we start to think of running as a sequence of beautiful or elegant moves that we make that propels our body mm interesting so it goes without saying that um because of the elasticity uh stuff like flexibility and yoga play a huge huge role in movement and in running as well 
Yeah, so so really this this sea of tension that I'm talking about in the body, that has sort of good equilibrium. So there's a very kind of symbiotic relationship between bone, muscle, and your fascia, your elastic system. They all kind of need each other. Um, and we're always trying to create this beautiful sea of tension. So things like yoga, Pilates, and stretching, they can help to get the body back into this sea of tension, this correct sea of tension. We have to be a little bit careful that we wouldn't want to make muscles too long because if we stretch a muscle too much, then we will start to affect that sea of tension. And actually, when we're moving dynamically, if a muscle is kind of longer than it should be, it actually loses its elasticity in dynamic movement. So we can be overly flexible for dynamic movement, but it's definitely good to do yoga, Pilates and stretching to get that body back into its good sea of tension, without a doubt. Right, right. So um, I think you've authored a book uh, by the name of the, the Lost Art of Movement. The Lost Art of Running. Running, yeah. Uh, what, what is that about? So that the book essentially has uh, two different parts to it. It kind of documents my journey. Um, and it also has a, a how-to guide within the book of how to, how to run, how to move beautifully, and, and to have all of the thought processes that I'm talking about. Right. So essentially, I was a runner, and I was an ultra runner. So an ultra is essentially anything longer than a marathon. Um, and so I would run distances up to up to about 180 miles in, in one go. So very long distances and sometimes over a number of days. And I had two challenges um, with my running. And I think these are challenges that many people face. One is that I kept getting injured. Hmm. And the other challenge was I just didn't seem to be getting any better. So I was just kind of moving from one injury to another and my performances weren't really getting any better. And, and, and that was frustrating because it was eroding away the enjoyment of running. And so I decided to go on a journey to find a better way to run, a way where I didn't get injured and a way where I could move faster and move more dynamically. Um, and uh, that journey really has taken me around the world. Uh, and uh, you know, my, my first journey was to Africa um, I spent a lot of time in Ethiopia and Kenya because that's where I identify some of the best runners in the world are. I think it's fair to say, yeah. you know, that there's some amazing runners there. And so those, those were my first journeys there to spend time with and live with athletes and uh, try and understand, yeah, what, what makes them move beautifully. Um, and I pretty quickly identified the fascial system, the elastic system in their body, and this concept of tensegrity, which I talk about the sea of tension in the body. And really for the last 10 years, I've been chasing that thought process around the world, looking at people on six different continents, tribes and indigenous people as well, trying to understand what human movement is. So the book covers that journey and tells you how to implement some of these thought processes. Right. So over your experiences, have do movement patterns, do uh, the way people run, differ from place to place, from country to country or anything of that sort? Or uh, have you noticed a certain, uh, you know, certain way that Indians run as compared to the Kenyans or anything of that sort? Or is everything individualized? Everyone has a different way of 
going about it with the movement? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So the first thing is every single human on the planet has a diff slightly different movement from each other. Your movement is kind of like your fingerprint. It's different to anybody else's on the planet because our movement is really a kind of a collection of uh, contraindications and idiosyncrasies that have gone on throughout our life. That molds our movement. Yeah. So our movement is always slightly different from another person's. Having said that, there is a way for a human to move. And certainly when that, when that human runs, there's a way a human is designed to run. Okay. But what I, have, what I have found in my research is that there are many things that affect our movement, but the two big things that affect our movement are, one is our perception of that movement. So if we grow up thinking about ourselves as being mechanical and a series of levers that biomechanics would suggest, that has a big influence on our movement. And also, and probably the biggest one, is our dynamic movement that sea of tension I talk about in the body with, that I use with that elastic model. The way we run, the sea of tension in our body when we run is only ever gonna be created by how we spend our day, okay? So if we spend a lot of our day sitting, for example, we are really putting the sea of tension in our body into a compromised position. We're almost collapsing in on ourselves, aren't we? And so, and more and more of us are sitting all the time, as I'm sure you, you, you would agree and you will see, I mean, yeah, absolutely, you're nodding there. So um, if, you know, we spend a lot less time standing now and a lot more time sitting. So um, that has a huge effect on our movement. So if I spend time with tribes and indigenous people, they wouldn't spend so much time sitting. Um, whereas if I work and if I study people in the city, a lot more, a lot more time sitting. So that affects the sea of tension in the body. And so it affects the dynamic movement. Does that lead to injuries as well? Absolutely, absolutely. Because what this sea of tension does do is it supports the body weight and has good equilibrium in the body. If we affect that sea of tension so it doesn't work well, then the body will, will, will tilt to one side or compensate. And then we don't dissipate the impact well that's coming back at us when we run. Because when, when, when if your listeners, if they're out listening to this while they're running, maybe, when you run, as a human, you have about two and a half times your body weight coming back at you when you hit the ground, okay? So when you run, you hit the ground with your foot and you have Newton's third law, any action is met by an equal and an opposite. You have about two and a half times your body weight coming back at you. Now that sounds scary, but actually it's a beautiful thing because that impact coming back at you into the body, because you are elastic, it turns into elastic energy and throws you forward. So it's one of the big things that powers a human being is their ability to make beautiful contact with the ground. But if we don't move well and we don't dissipate that impact well, then it can potentially come back to injure us. So that's why it's very important that we don't just run, that we treat it as a skill so that we harness that elastic energy, harness that impact and use it to propel our bodies. Right. All right. So um, I want to come back to the Kenyans and uh, the Ethiopians. So what's their secret? Do they have a secret that uh, they aren't telling the world? Is it, is it, is, is it something to do with a diet? Or uh, I, I don't think they have the resources to afford world-class um, trainers and 
scientists and experts to you know really perfect their movements uh, right so in general I, i'm not i'm not talking about the ones who are at the top sure. right yeah. so uh, yeah. but apart from that what is it about them or do they have any formula or anything of that sort that makes them much better than runners yeah so there are a number of things that uh, kind of go into the pot if you like to make them great runners they and they grow up in altitude so so you know so they you know the, 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 you know, the, the races Long grow up at altitude which really helps they grow up in bare feet which really helps <coughs> excuse me there's genetics so that helps over hundreds of years um for the for the for the kenyans um just about all of the successful kenyan middle distance long distance runners come from the kelogen tribe um and so the you know over the years over the generations genetics has played a big part diet definitely has something to do with it um running out of poverty so you know for 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 a lot of runners in east africa to become successful runners that's a way of improving your life that's a that's a great motivator without a doubt um and but you know probably the biggest one and one you wouldn't imagine but i think the biggest one in my experience is actually what i would call the power of the group okay so the runners live together train together eat drink sleep together they spend all of their time together they push each other incredibly hard when they're training and racing and yet they're there to put their arm around each other when things aren't going well so the power of the group is an incredibly powerful thing um and i think certainly in the western world you know we don't we don't really make the most of that i think we tend to do things more on our own these days and we don't have the power of that group and i certainly see that with tribes and indigenous people as well we very much work together and help each other and have a system where everybody plays a part um and um yeah i don't see that so much here um i don't know how it is for you and and what your thoughts are on that do you do you do you have that power of the group or uh, yeah so uh you know india you've been to india so many people yeah. having said that having said that i i have been noticing a lot of um groups that work out together uh, they probably don't live together and but they they've formed really strong communities where they go for treks together they go for you know these long runs as a group yeah. a group of 20 30 people and then um they're always there they train every morning and then probably over the weekends they go for a long run or a swim and i i think that's really good one because it helps you compare yourself with uh the others in the group it helps you push yourself right i mean as compared to running yourself you can set you know timings and stuff like that but it's not the same right uh, yeah. when you're working out with a group is a whole different feeling to it and i i definitely uh, feel it helps keep you more accountable absolutely i would agree with all of those and it's it's huge and i think we should try and do it you know more often and 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 the thing is with as humans we're great mimickers yeah so we love to mimic what we see uh, and we see that with children don't we when children are growing up you know they they mimic you know they mimic their parents they mimic they, uh, the things that are around them and you know it's fascinating when you watch the certainly the kenyans run i spend a lot of time with the kenyan runners and they when they when they they run around the track in eights so there'll be eight of them running 
and actually the new people to the um, to the training camps will slot into that eight. So into the middle of that eight, they will slot into that eight. And then by the power of the group, by flow, by osmosis, they start to move like the rest of the athletes. Mm. So they're not coached really with a whistle and a stopwatch. They're not coached technically to move the way that they do. They do it by running within a group of runners that are already moving in that way. And so, and this just gets handed down. So it's almost handed down like a, um, like a story or a language. This movement gets passed on and passed on and passed on. It's a, an amazing thing to watch. It's a beautiful way to learn um, because they're, they're really not thinking too hard about it. They're just moving within that beautiful system. And so we can definitely do that within groups as well ourselves. If we get people that are good, that can coach and that, 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 that know what good movement is and show people good movement, by example, people will then start to follow that. I think I think that's a, a, an amazing thing. Interesting. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And uh, um, is it also a cultural thing where they are more closely knit and that helps as well? Like you mentioned, it's uh, it, it has does it have something to do with culture as compared to the, uh, you know, Western society where people are more individualistic? I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. People, people, are, you know, outside of running are far more likely to spend time together. You might have three, maybe even four generations of people living together. We don't really see that so much. You do sometimes, but, but, but not so much. So I think it makes more sense. Absolutely. And, and, and they're more, you know, happy to do that. Um, and I think, you know, for a lot of people these days, you know, the power of the group or the tribe is social media. Um, for good or bad i think it can do some great things but i think it can also segregate us as well and we can maybe feel that we're part of something but without really getting too much human contact and i think i think we need that that that's what we're designed to do is you know is uh, is be a social animal and that's that's one of the strengths of a human is the ability to come together communicate and work as a team that that you know that we that we've built a lot on that so i think we should do that for the quality of our lives um, and also for the quality of our movement and in the name of sports as well. I think we could learn a lot from that. It's not all about sports science and, and budgets and funds, you know, all of those things help. Um, but fundamentally, you know, if we want to get the most of ourselves out, out of ourselves as a human, then we should start to understand actually what a human is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. So uh, you mentioned sports. So, uh, Quick question around sports. So, uh, cricket, football, tennis, different sports require different movements, right? Absolutely. So, um, how do you go about setting certain training regimes around that for athletes with different sports? Because what I mean, things have changed right now, but earlier we do the same thing as what footballer tennis players would do the same thing as what footballers would do or even cricketers they'd all be made to run 20 rounds for endurance and things like that right so um how has how have things changed so i think yeah so there's, i think i guess there's two parts to being fit for sports one is the cardiovascular system the engine Yep. So that's that's not something that I get so involved in, but clearly running or, or you know, any any anything you do endurance is going to is going to build your cardiovascular system. But from the movement point of view, 
you, you know, you're absolutely right. D different sports have a different technique. You know, hitting a cricket ball is very different from diving off of a dive board or running um, or hitting a tennis ball. Um, you know, they're all they're all very different sports, but they do all require a movement skill. Now, I think one of the big things for, for, for people to to think about here is actually movement. Our physical movement is actually a software thing. It's a brain thing. There isn't really any such thing as muscle memory. We talk about muscle memory all the time. So we think, you know, I'm going to I'm going to practice 500 times to hit a cricket ball. And my muscles will remember that movement so that when it comes to it and it's the big shot, I have the muscle memory and I can make that shot. Right. That's actually not the case. The muscles don't really remember anything. They might get strong at the task and they might get good at the task. But actually, what I think of as your software, your brain, that's where the memory is created. OK, so it's different from what we might imagine. So when we go out and practice something, we're essentially rewriting our software we're rewriting our movement software in our brain and then the hardware the physical body it adapts to that skill okay and really you know i work with lots of athletes in lots of different sports but what i'm effectively doing is changing their perception of their movement so if they start to believe that they are synergistic connected fluid and elastic in their movements once they understand that overall concept of how a human moves, they will then start to introduce that into their individual sport. So as a tennis player, if you're hitting a tennis ball, if you start to understand that you have elastic connective tissue in your body that runs continuously from your toes up into the top of your head and that you have beautiful lines of elasticity running through your body, if you know about those lines of elasticity, when you put your body into a position to hit a tennis ball, you might just make it that little bit more accentuated to join in with that elastic energy that you want to create. You have to know about something to maximize it. So my work is about enlightening athletes and everyday runners and everyday people. They don't have to be elites. You know, you can be playing cricket out in the square. You know, you can be anywhere. If you can change somebody's thought processes about their movement, that goes a long way to changing the movement itself. And I think that's really exciting because remember, you're a human hitting a tennis ball. You're a human hitting a cricket ball. You're a human kicking a football. So if we know how that human is designed to move, you're going to do that skill better. Why does it seem that it's more of a philosophical thing than what I had pictured, which was more correction of technique? Well, it, it, I do do a lot of work on, tech, on uh, correction of technique. I use a lot of video analysis and I use a lot of very clever sensors to look at how people are moving. But I think what we need to do, first of all, is get that person, get that athlete or that, that, that person doing something athletic to move the way a human is designed to move. Once we've got human movement, once you are now playing with the attributes that a human has, then we turn that human movement into human performance. And that's when we then do start to correct movement with video analysis or with movement sensors. But I think if we just jump in and try and correct things without the, the athlete, without the, the person knowing how and why, I think it's which we're trying to create 
change stuff at the top without getting the base right. Yeah. I think we must remember we're an animal. We are part, we are a human species. To get most the most out of that, we must adapt to how that human was designed to move and think. Can that complicate things for athletes? Or um, does it depend on the athlete? Because some, um, some athletes may prefer to just uh, be told what to do. And some athletes sure. prefer to know why they're doing it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I think there's two ways of being taught something. There's being drilled. And by drilled, I mean getting, doing something time and time and time again so that you get good at it. So there's being drilled and then there's being coached. If you're coached, I think you're taught to think about what you're doing and how you're doing it and how to adapt it. So I don't, you know, I don't really play tennis, but there's no doubt if I turned up at a tennis club every day for a year and hit tennis balls, by the end of the year, I'd be better at hitting tennis balls than when I, at the start of the year. But I wouldn't maximize my potential to hit a tennis ball unless I was thinking about it, unless I was being cognitive, unless I understood what it is I want to achieve when I hit the ball and actually what's happening with my body when I hit the ball. So I think being coached creates a much better athlete um, rather than being drilled. Because if you're drilled and you're drilled to do a certain thing, if it goes slightly differently, because sport does, sport doesn't always go the way we think it's going to go. If we've only been drilled, then really, can we adapt to the new situation? Maybe not. Whereas if we've been coached, if we've been taught to be an intelligent athlete about our body and what we want to achieve, we can start to adapt during the game or during the run or the events ourselves. You know, the, the, the athlete has the power. I, the, 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 you know, the coach isn't there. The coach can't really affect the game. The coach mm -hmm. isn't there on every training run. You know, the coach isn't always there when you're hitting balls or chasing balls. So the best thing a coach can do for the athlete is give them wisdom and information and create an intelligent athlete. And I, and I, I believe that passionately. Mm. Do you watch football? Yes, I do. I'm British, so it's almost my job. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, who do you follow? <laughs> so, um, I, so I follow Oxford United because that's my kind of local team. Right. Um, but many, many people won't re recognise Oxford um, if, if you're in India. But mm. Liverpool, I, so I follow, for my premiership team, I follow Liverpool. So Oxford are quite low in the divisions, right. but I follow Liverpool as my, as my premiership team. Sure, sure. All right. So um, when you mentioned um, being an intelligent athlete, right, uh, I guess if it were to be Liverpool... I guess probably uh, Bobby Firmino. Um, mm -hmm. With regards to his movement, um, can athletes be trained to become intelligent with the way they move, or is it is are some things just instinct? Well, that's a really yeah. So, and actually, football is an amazing example of this. It's an interesting one because if you think about it, so if you the, the game lasts ninety minutes, there or thereabouts, a little bit longer. So if we think about Firmino, uh, he may be on the ball for maybe two minutes of that 90. 
in reality. Yeah, he's not on the ball that often. When he's on the ball, it's very reactive. It's very instinctive. He uses his intelligence and he uses his instinct to do what he does. And yeah, he's a great example because no one really knows what he's going to do. He, you know, he's the difficult person to mark. But what about the other 88 minutes? What's he doing? He's moving around. He's running around from one end of the field to the other, making runs, hoping the ball might come. doesn't always come. So for the other 88 minutes, if he moved efficiently with a thought process of how to run up and down and save energy and do it in the most efficient, dynamic way, he might have more energy in that last 10 minutes of the game, which is very often when the game is uh, decided. So I think instinct is an amazing thing. It's what makes some of the best footballers as good as they are. But actually for a lot of the game, they are just moving around and can put a lot more thought process into it. Mm. So probably even uh, when you come to football, okay, if you are going to talk about football, even uh, let's say Cristiano Ronaldo, um, uh-huh. he's, uh, he's been at the top for so long because he's learned to become more efficient with his movement, right? He doesn't uh, spend his energy on uh, things that he probably did a decade or so back, right? He prefers to be more intelligent and find the right spaces with regards to uh, movement. Absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, that saves him a lot of energy. I think he's, he's very good at reading whether someone's actually going to make that pass um, before he even makes the run. So most people would make the run and hope the pass came. I think he's pretty good at understanding that player and whether that's likely to happen. Um, yeah. And actually, when, when he runs, he does run very upright. He runs very tall, very elegantly. And that, that's a very efficient thing to do, you know, from a physical point of view as well. Um, and he certainly looks after himself as well, doesn't he? I think he's a, 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 a big professional in that way. But yeah. Um, but, you know, he's getting smart. He gets a year older every year, but he gets a year smarter. And, yeah. but, you know, we can do that ourselves. You know, we can get smart about our movement. We can get smart about the human body and what it can do. And we can then play to its, um, you know, its, its unique um, ability. Yeah, we can adapt to what made us successful as humans. So, yeah, I, he's, a, he's a good example of actually what we can all do within our, within our own sports. And like I say, if I, if, I, if I use the word athlete, what I'm basically describing is somebody who does something athletic. And that could be going for a one-mile run uh, or it could be running a, you know, a three-hour marathon. It could be anything. I think if you do something athletic, you have the right to call yourself an athlete and take pride in your, uh, in your ability and, and, and your ability to, to get better at it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I had two questions. I don't know which to go first. Uh, with regards to um, the efficiency in movement, that 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 so that's that can be a technical thing as well, right? So uh, oh. yeah, with without a doubt, yes, without a doubt, you can change your perception of your movement so that you're more likely to adapt to it, but without a doubt technically moving better technically landing the foot the way that the foot should land leaving the ground the way the foot should leave the ground what you do with your arms what you do with your head position what you do with your cadence all of these things um, are technical things that can be adapted and can be changed and the coaching the coaching website that I have 
works works a lot on that. So it has lots of kind of downloadable videos so you can see how something is done correctly. And what it inspires people to do is actually to buddy up with the power of the group, video each other running so you can see yourself moving. You know, you can talk about running uh, or movement and you can read about it, but 10 seconds of seeing yourself move on video is incredibly enlightening. So if you and I, we, you know, if we buddied up, we could film each other running. And then the idea is then, you know, people would look at the website and they can see the videos, look at themselves running, look at the videos and think, oh, well, actually I'm doing this well, but actually I'm not doing this very well. Um, and then they can work to kind of change those movements. So you don't have to have a technical coach. Like I said earlier, you're your coach. That's how mm. it should be. We just need people to give us the information to enlighten us as to, as, as to what's good movement and, and what isn't. Right. Can it be quantified? Can, can it be quantified to, let's say, you can know what percentage more efficient you can get uh, by improving your movement, by improving your technique? Do you have any uh, data on that or do you just get better in general? Yeah, so there are there are no there are no percentages um, of increased efficiency that you could put on everybody in general because we're all very different. Like I said earlier, your movements, like your fingerprints, different to anybody else's on the planet. Your ability to take on information, how hard you practice, where you're coming from, and where you're going to. There are many many deciding factors on this, but without a doubt, I can absolutely guarantee you, if you if you take an interest in that movement. If you video yourself moving um, and you start and you understand what it is you're trying to achieve, the amount of progress you can make is phenomenal. I am constantly, and I probably shouldn't be anymore, but I still am constantly amazed at how people's horizons change once they start to take on something and start to work on it. What doesn't seem possible now, six months down the line is, is done and you're looking further and further afield and because it's a skill there's never an end to it nobody's ever going to stand up and say ah oh, i'm not going to do yoga anymore because i've mastered it i'm not going to meditate anymore because i've mastered it we're always learning and trying to get better at it mm -hmm. and i think that keeps it fun as well yeah definitely definitely um okay efficiency is one thing uh, what about speed? Uh, because you, you see a lot of athletes who are just really quick, who are just really quick uh, with their feet and some athletes who are just for whatever reason, they aren't. So uh, can, can, that, can speed be improved? To yes, it yes, it definitely can. Yes, it definitely can. You know, there are always going to be, you know, if we had 100 people in the park here today and we got them running around, there would undoubtedly be some that are faster than others. There would be some that are better at running, running long distances. You know, so we're always going to have an attribute of our own. So we shouldn't think of it as what we haven't got. We all have attributes. I guess we've got to find those um, and understand them. But yeah, we can all increase our speed. But that kind of does come through efficiency to a large degree. So efficiency isn't just about saving energy. I think one of the ways we look at running at the moment is we think of efficient movement as the ability to move over the ground and save energy or not use energy. Okay. 
And uh, and when I spend time in India and I look at when I see people run as I come every year and I coach um, and I do my research as well. And what I see is people moving over the ground in a way where they're thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not using much energy. I'm saving energy here. So that's efficient. I see beautiful movement as the ability to move over the ground and create energy, elastic energy. So the more dynamically we move, the more we have a beautiful interaction with the ground, the more elastic energy we create and the more it throws us forward. If we shuffle around in the name of saving energy, what we actually do is create an almost entirely muscle-based propulsion. And muscles are very greedy. They want a lot of oxygen. They want a lot of calories. They produce lactate. They don't, you know, they're hard to keep happy. This elastic system in our body, the fascial system, it doesn't want any oxygen. It doesn't want any calories. It doesn't produce lactic acid. If we move beautifully and tap into it, it gives us propulsion. Nothing's completely for free, but it really doesn't want much from you. So it means you can move more dynamically and for longer because really often what slows us down is our inability to get enough oxygen into our body to fuel our muscles. But if our muscles aren't doing anywhere near the work, we can go faster for longer. So I think we need to change the way we think about efficiency. Efficiency isn't about moving and trying not to waste energy. It's about moving and creating energy. Okay. I can't believe I um, completely missed to uh, ask you about this, but yeah, Roger Federer. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a, there's a guy who moves beautifully. Everything is elegant. He oozes class. He's always in the right place at the right time. People who I, I guess technically are stronger, potentially fitter, certainly younger. But yeah, he does everything and he does everything beautifully. And when he hits the ball, there isn't a huge amount of muscle power going into that. But he does it in such an elegant way that the elastic energy he creates when he hits a ball is, is amazing. Absolutely amazing. And uh, yeah, and, and, and that's why he's still around. So I don't, I mean, he seems to have been around forever and long may it continue. Um, but and, and because and I think the reason he's still around and still playing at the top of his game is he isn't using muscles to do it. He's moving in this way where he creates a huge amount of strength and elastic energy from from the way he moves. Why haven't other tennis players been able to reach that sort of grace when they play? Uh, they, they, are, they haven't been able to emulate the way he does it. Is it really that hard? I don't think it's, I don't think it's hard. You know, it, it, it's, it's a, like everything is a challenge to, 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 to make the most of it. But again, it comes back to our thought process that our power comes from muscle. And so we train in a way where we try and train our muscles. But our muscles, you know, we gave muscle away about six million years ago. So as a, as a human species, six million years ago, we would have been on, we would have been quadrupeds. We would have been on all four, all four limbs and very muscly. But we gave that away and we went for an elastic approach. We, we developed a very tough foot and the ability to stand tall and get elastic. And that meant we could cover much bigger ground, catch more food, get bigger brains. Yeah. And that's how a human developed. Okay. And so it makes absolute sense to me that when you play sport, you should tap into those, 
those USPs, those beautiful things that Mother Nature gave us as, as we developed. But it's really interesting because actually we don't. What we, we see our strength as a human, quite literally, as muscle. And so when we're hitting a ball or chasing a ball or whatever it is we're doing, we think we're doing it with our muscles. But that's very limited because we gave it away a long time ago. So it comes down again to our perception of our movement. Right. I spend time with um, the Sherpas in the, in, the, in the Himalayas in Nepal. So I go and live with remote uh, communities of Sherpas. And these, these Sherpas are incredible people. They can carry twice their body weight for a day. Unbelievable. And yet, if you look at them, they're tiny. Yep, there's no, there are no big muscles there. Mm-hmm. Yep, there are no big muscles, but they move in a way and they, they carry the loads in a way where they adapt to the USP of, of, of a human. So strength isn't about muscle, I don't think. I think it's about a good equilibrium in the body um, and using that elastic system because it doesn't only give you strength and it gives you, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't only give you elasticity, sorry, it gives you strength as well. You get your body with this, this uh, tensegrity model that I was talking about, you get height in your body and good equilibrium in it. It makes you very elastic, but now it has a huge amount of strength in it as well. So I think it's just, yeah, your perception of your movement. Nobody has told the Sherpas about biomechanics, so they don't move in a mechanical way. Whereas sports people grow up these days on a diet of biomechanics, and we tend to do things in a more muscular and a more lever type way. Okay. Um, How much does diet play a role in this? In well, diet, yeah. diet, yeah, diet. I mean, that's definitely not my speciality. So I'm, you know, I'm my movement is what I work on and, and what I study. Um, so I can't really offer too much um, sort of expertise on diet. When it comes to um, movement, when it comes to uh, what is the importance of diet when it comes to movement and running? Is uh, where, well, I think what so, I so if we if we look at the, the, the fascial system that we've been talking about, that is essentially made up of water and something called collagen. Okay. So you really, to, to, to move well, you have to be extremely well hydrated. Okay. And, but it's not enough just to drink a lot of water. The way in which the elastic system, the fascial system hydrates is need to move it you need to challenge them to contract and relax and actually take on water so we need to be well hydrated and so we need to drink well but actually we need to make movements good movements the actual movements themselves start to hydrate the system so if you had a sponge and you put that sponge in some water and pulled the sponge out there'd be lots of water in the sponge if you took the sponge put it in the water and squeezed the sponge and then pulled it out it would have a load more water in it so our system kind of works like that. So hydration is incredibly important. Right. All right. Um, okay. The last part of uh, the podcast. Uh, um, let's talk a, b- a bit around injuries. So um, can people know beforehand that they are about to get injured? Mm, no, I don't think I don't think you can know beforehand. You can start to see the signs. So you know, pain, stiffness, um, soreness is kind of the body's way of saying, "Look, there's an issue here." Yeah, 
So, you know, we need to think about what you're doing here and it's your way of letting you know. But and then it's understanding what kind of pain, because if you if you change your movement tomorrow, you're going to be loading the soft tissues in your body in a new way. Hmm. And actually, those soft tissues have got to adapt to that new way. And so they, you can have some stiffness in the body and some slight soreness, which isn't actually an injury. It's just the body's way of adapting to the new movement. And that's often very transient. You'll move through that and come out the other side. I guess, you know, if you took a long time off from tennis and you didn't hit balls for a few months and then actually got back into a really big session, you'd wake up the next day pretty stiff, huh? Yeah. So, yeah. so sometimes the pain is a way of the body adapting and sometimes pain is the way of the body saying, look, you are not doing this right. Don't do this. You are hurting yourself here. So it's kind of trying to understand what that what that pain is. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm not a physio, um, so I wouldn't want to give too much advice. And it's very difficult to do it generically on what's good pain and what's bad pain. But I think um, my advice would be when you're changing your movement, do expect potentially some stiffness and some soreness. And when you get that, take it easy, take a couple of days off and just do little in things in, in small increments and you will transition through it. If that pain doesn't go away and it's more persistent, then it's probably your body's way of saying, hey, you've got a problem here. You're doing this wrong. I don't like this. Then maybe you need to go and see a physio or you need to kind of look at it a little bit closer. Wonderful. Uh, wonderful. All right. Uh last one for the beginner the beginner who's the motivated beginner um mm -hmm. how do you know when to push and when to stop how do you understand when to do it yeah uh, that's a good that is a good one that is a good one and it's definitely important because yeah if we push too hard you know we, we tend to injure because we misuse or overuse the body yeah so we, we do have to listen to our body because, you know, if it's, if it's shouting at us to stop, it may well be because we are going beyond the limits of what we can currently do. Of course, we can increase what we can do. So I think increasing, you know, there's, there's, there's always this, this rule that people talk about, you know, don't increase anything by maybe more than 10% at a time. Mm. And I think that it's, you know, I think that's a pretty good rule of thumb, to be honest with you. Um, if we do too much too soon, then, you know, we, we are going to potentially hurt ourselves. But at the same time, we have to break new ground. We have to develop. Otherwise, we won't get better or we won't get fitter. Right. So I think that's probably the best advice I could give is try not to make, try not to increase things in too bigger increments, nice and often. Try, especially in the early days, little and often, and small increases. But you do need to make increases to, 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 to develop. Um, okay. So I think that's probably the best general advice I could give. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, just to follow up on that. Um, uh, yeah. My dad actually mentioned this. That he's not, you know, um, scientifically into running or anything of that sort. He does run. Um, but he mentioned that in general, like, right. So he gave running as an example uh, because he runs. Yep. But he mentioned that every day you're running and maybe you're doing, let's say one day you run five kilometers. Uh, the next day you run 
six kilometers or maybe 5.5 right and then you're doing uh incremental improvements but there has to be times where you take a giant leap so that you break the threshold so you go from six to let's say 10 and then 10 becomes you know your benchmarks and then you can increase from 10 to go from 10 to 10.2 10.3 so you break the level you're, you're at so what yeah, are your thoughts I, I on mean, that well my thoughts are to go back really to that gentle increase i do i do believe that certainly in the early days because in the early days you're actually creating the, the, the strength in the body to 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 perform the task so i think really yeah i don't think you can beat it and if you're doing it little and often it doesn't take long to go from six to ten i just don't think you should do it in one big jump uh, I, I i don't i you know it's it's subjective other people may say that it's good to do that but i think you're overly stressing the body potentially doing that i think the small increases will allow the body to adapt and uh and move on and remember fitness only comes during recovery you don't get fit you don't get strong during the run you actually get fit while you're kind of recovering from that from that um athletic exertion so you know i think little and often and build it for me in my experience is by far the best way to do it perfect Perfect. Um, Shin, we've spoken quite a bit around the basics of running. Mm-hmm. Where yep. can people, uh, I know you, you do uh, tons of work on social and uh, stuff like that. So where can people follow your work in terms of like, you could probably share your social media, the website that you mentioned as well. Yeah. So you'll find me at uh, runningreborn.com. Uh, and that's, so that's my website. So you can find, you can follow my work there. You'll find all the social media stuff and the YouTube stuff I do. I'll try and give information out and thought processes. Um, and, uh, you can find the book there, all the work that I do. The coaching site is there as well. Um, which is a subscription site, um, that allows you to have downloads of videos and stuff like that. And I say it inspires you to go out and video yourself and talk you through, that process of, of, of kind of getting better. So it's kind of something that you can do, buddy up with someone and do together and just have that as a resource to see whether it's going well. So everything I do, you can find at runningreborn.com. Wonderful. Um, Shane, love the background. Uh, love the <laughs> podcast even more. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Uh, listen, absolutely my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. It was good fun, good fun chatting with you. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to come back anytime and there's always more to discuss. So anytime, give me a call and uh, I'll find you an even more exciting background next time. (laughs) Most definitely. (laughs) Take care, Shane. All right. See you soon.